Previously on Transformers University, we continued our dive into Season 2 of the original Transformers cartoon, and we continue to do so in this episode. Five more pieces of Transformers history will take us back in time to ancient Cybertron and the Middle Ages of Earth. We have some special guests lined up to keep it right here on Transformers University. Hello, my friend, and welcome to episode 31 of Transformers University. I am your host, Anthony Brucali, and today we are going to talk a bit more about season two of the original Transformers cartoon with episodes 21 through 25 of the season. Overall, those are episodes 37. I'm 37? Through 41. And those episodes are Desertion of the Dinobots, parts one and two, along with Blaster Blues, a Decepticon Raider in King Arthur's Court, and the Golden Lagoon. But before we get into those episodes, we are going to jump into a little bit of listener feedback. So first, I want to thank all of you for sending in your comments, commenting on uh, wherever you listen to the show. And it's good to know you have been listening, so uh, please do keep commenting on the social media and wherever you find the show. I'll tell you more about how you can interact with the show at the end of the show. And this first comment comes from Lucas Leontes Garrett, one of our enrolled seniors over at our Patreon, patreon.com slash tfuinfo. And Lucas writes about episode 29, the Marvel UK episode where we covered the 1985 annual and the story, and there shall come a leader. Lucas writes, uh, and there shall come a leader is one of my favorite Transformers stories ever done. Simon Furman used the tumultuous history of the Roman Republic becoming the Roman Empire as inspiration to show how Optimus Prime became supreme commander of all Autobot forces at war with Megatron and the Decepticons. In a sense, Optimus Prime could be seen as Julius Caesar to Megatron Spartacus. And, uh... I was kind of floored by this comment. Uh, it's a great way of looking at it, especially with Megatron in various continuities having uh, a backstory of being a uh, gladiator on Cybertron before the war. And one more bit of feedback comes from Dank Starscream over on YouTube. You can subscribe to the show over on YouTube at youtube.com slash TFU info. That's youtube.com slash TFU INFO. And he writes about the previous episode, episode number 30. Uh, LOL, I like how you keep using the master vocals from Metallica's Master of Puppets. Well, quick uh, inside scoop here. I'm technically sampling a sample of Metallica's Master of Puppets. I took that clip from Anthrax's I'm the Man. So I want to thank those folks for writing in. And of course, if you want to write in, if you want to reach out to me, Email address is info at tfu.info, and of course, you can catch me on Twitter at tfu underscore info, and we'll talk more about uh, how to get in touch with the show later, as I mentioned before. And let's get into what you came here for, and that is the original cartoon, and we're going to start with Desertion of the Dinobots. And this is a two-parter written by Earl Cress, and that wasn't always the case. The interesting story about Desertion of the Dinobots is that it started out as a one-parter, and um, I wrote the entire outline, and uh, Bryce Malik, the story editor, called me and he said, I have good news and bad news. 
said the good news is they want to turn this into a two-parter. The bad news is obviously you have to redo the outline because now uh, you have to spread the story over the two parts. And that was where the um, idea of, uh, because they, they liked the idea so much of going to Cybertron, they felt there was enough material there to, uh, this, these were the executives at Sunbow, felt that there was enough story there to turn it into a two-parter. So I was happy to oblige. <laughs> and while we'll get a bit into going to Cybertron in part two, part one takes place mainly on Earth and it kicks off with Professor Green, uh, a human voiced by Peter Redaday, who has this new experimental aircraft called an ultraplane. And this plane uh, has dual nose cones and can be flown uh, with a remote control. Uh, and the lab he works out, interesting note here, is called EJK Labs, which is Earl J. Cress's initials, the writer of this episode. Now, for some reason, outside of EJK Labs, uh, Ironhide is out there with his tailgate open, and inside of his trunk, he has Blaster, and he also has Soundwave. How he doesn't notice Soundwave um, hanging out in his trunk, or how Blaster doesn't notice that Soundwave is right next to him in Ironhide's trunk is beyond me, but uh, he ejects Ravage, and Blaster and Ravage start fighting inside of Ironhide. Now, in this episode, the Decepticons attempt to steal the blueprints for the Ultraplane. The Autobots arrive. There's a fight. Uh, the Decepticons appear to be losing, and Soundwave and Starscream make uh, this fantastic observation. And, of course, what they were observing was one of Hound's holograms. Now, there's a great thing here in this episode early on. Um, the Autobots on this mission are Blaster, Jazz, Mirage, and Hound, which is kind of like a uh, sights and sounds um, group of Autobots, people that have visual or audio powers. Blaster and Jazz have various sound and light show powers. Mirage can become invisible, and Hound has his holograms. Now, while all this is going on, Carly, Spike, and Bumblebee are hanging out at the Fun-Arama amusement park, which was much better than the Toy-Arama uh, amusement park because it had uh, a better lines and less racism. And while there, uh, Bumblebee rides the teacups with uh, Spike and Carly, uh, a ride that will certainly make me sick. I know that. So they leave the amusement park to go to the airport to pick up Sparkplug. And while they're at the airport, they notice uh, a bunch of military planes at a commercial airport going into a hangar. And perhaps they've seen something they shouldn't have seen because they realize those planes are Decepticons hanging out in the hangar. hangar 18, now, with no Autobots available to help Bumblebee, Wheeljack gets the Dinobots out of the closet and sends them to help the Dinobots attack the Decepticons at the hangar and defeat the Seekers and Megatron and Rumble, the blue one, along with Blitzwing. Uh, the Dinobots transform into robot mode, and Megatron points out that the Dinobots are more vulnerable in robot mode, which is something we learned for the first time here, and it's uh, an interesting little weakness built into the characters uh, in this episode, and Megatron, the Decepticons, fire on the Dinobots, um, causing several 747s to explode, uh, and they win and retreat. Now, in the midst of this, Red Alert, Inferno, and Hoist show up to uh, clean up the mess and put out some fires. 
hoist loads the Dinobots onto a 747, then tows that 747 back to Autobot base now. So he's essentially stealing a plane with a tow truck and bringing it back to Autobot base. Now, Wheeljack, Hoist, and Ratchet attempt to repair the Dinobots and complain about needing better tools. Why the tools they used to build the Dinobots to begin with last season uh, aren't good enough is beyond me. But um, in the conversation, we get a flashback to a weird generic Autobot on Cybertron because they're talking about how much better everything is on Cybertron. Uh, this weird generic Autobot that kind of looks like Snarl but transforms into this weird sphere globe thing and flies away. Um, we never see that Autobot again. And we have no idea who he is. Uh, after the repair, the uh, Dinobots refuse to fight for the Autobots and walk out. Now, the rest of the episode is, is hinged around the Autobots and the Decepticons, both mysteriously having trouble um, transforming and controlling their powers. Uh, there's a fight between the Autobots and the Decepticons. Uh, at one point, Ravage attacks Optimus Prime and spontaneously turns into his cassette mode, which uh, leaves us to this great observation by the Autobot leader. Thanks for transforming! Now, there's some hilarious fails in this episode beyond that soundbite. Um, Powerglide, for some reason, can't keep his own head on when the Autobots are trying to figure out uh, what's causing all their problems. Uh, and it turns out both the Autobots and the Decepticons are low on something called Cybertonium. They find out that Shockwave is sending some Cybertonium via the Space Bridge to the Decepticons, and Cybertonium only exists on Cybertron. Uh, in the midst of trying to figure out what is wrong with the Autobots and what they can do, Carly deduces that Cybertonium isn't in the Dinobots because they were built on Earth. Carly comes up with a plan to convince the Dinobots to take them to Cybertron to save the rest of the Autobots and enlist Spike and Sparkplug, and even calls Sparkplug by his last name, which we rarely hear in the cartoon. Here, Mr. Whitwicky, you drive. <laughs> I've been riding with the Autobots so long now, I hope I still know how to drive. Carly successfully convinces the Dinobots to join them on this mission, and they go to the Space Bridge and end up fighting the Constructicons. Uh, the Dinobots end up getting into the Space Bridge and getting to Cybertron, where they have to fight Shockwave, who at one point is briefly animated with two hands. Now, if you've seen Shockwave before, he has a gun on one hand and a hand on the other hand, on the other wrist, I should say. And that there is one scene in here where you can see him clearly have two hands. So back at Autobot base, Sparkplug gets the Dinobots on the radio and the Dinobots refuse to help the Autobots. So Carly and Spike take things into their own hands and realize they need to go to Cybertron too. Now we don't really know yet what happened with the Dinobots and Shockwave. We just know that they're on Cybertron. Um, so Carly and Spike hop in the car. They go for the space bridge. They bounce off of Devastator's leg uh, as he tries to stop them and end up in the space bridge. But this time Shockwave is ready and he is uh, ready to shoot 
whatever comes out of the space bridge. And in his hand is actually a miniature version of himself as a gun. Uh, which is just a weird animation thing. And as the space bridge door opens, Shockwave fires into the doorway, and that ends part one of Desertion of the Dinobots. And that takes us to part two of Desertion of the Dinobots, season two, episode 22, overall episode 38. And we'll just pick up from where we left off, and I'll give you my observation on the two-parter afterwards but uh we start with this episode where shockwave shoots into the doorway but this time it's not an explosion he shoots carly's car and it just disappears and somehow now shockwave has this ability to shoot things that then just disappear uh there was no explosion like the previous episode now back in the previous episode something i forgot to mention is that sparkplug gives spike a thumb radio to call Teletran 1, and it's like a band-aid he puts on his thumb that is a communicator, and he uses that to call back to Autobot Base, and Sparkplug pulls up uh, Spike and can kind of somehow make images of what uh, is going on on Cybertron. And at one point, uh, they realize they're inside um, a computer on Cybertron that controls most of Cybertron, and at one point, the screen for that computer reads Decepticon Computer Brain, and Decepticon is spelt with a K for the second C. Uh, while standing in the computer, Carly uh, falls and accidentally shorts out the whole computer and hurts her ankle. Uh, Carly and Spike escape the computer, but Shockwave has dispatched the Sentinel. Now, the Sentinel is this weird robot that's on uh, treads. Uh, he doesn't have feet. He's just kind of, um, he's practically Johnny Five from the Short Circuit films. Who is Johnny? And he's chasing after them, and Spike has an idea. They hold this sliding door open just long enough for the Sentinel to get his head in it, and then Spike lets it go, and it crushes his head. So they're headed to Wheeljack's lab, which we definitely saw a couple times before, once in the Ultimate Doom and once in Divide and Conquer, but somehow Wheeljack's lab has a Decepticon symbol above the door. Uh, while they're there, there's a, a mysterious shadowy figure following them. Uh, he crashes the party, and it turns out it is Swoop. Uh, we flash back as we hear from Swoop that Swoop and the Dinobots had to fight off Shockwave and his sentries, and... The Dinobots were overcome and captured while Swoop escaped. And so Swoop and the kids, uh, they take to trying to find the Dinobots who have been taken to the Cybertonium pits. Uh, they hop on this futuristic subway thing. It's like a, a tube, uh, which is Jetsons style, uh, which oddly enough, Earl Kress also wrote uh, Jetsons comic books. Uh, and there's a car that they can sit in, and it's kind of like a roller coaster car, but with just one car. And uh, it's kind of a neat scene to see how uh, how Cybertron works uh, underneath and throughout. So it's um uh, it's certainly something to check out if you haven't seen the episode. And so they end up somewhere. They don't really exactly know where to go. So they start walking these tunnels. And they find uh, old generics, uh, old Transformers that deactivated booby traps. So after the obstacles, the, uh, the kids find a viewer in this room, in this ancient Cybertronian 
city that seems to be built on top of. Uh, and there's uh, viewer discs that show history of an earlier time on Cybertron, presumably the Golden Age that we will learn about throughout the series. And um, you know what? Instead of describing it to you, I'm just going to play you the audio from the disc. Millions of years ago, Cybertron was a planet of peace. Until the Decepticons, lusting for power, began a terrible war, not designed for combat. The Autobots were overwhelmed and subjugated by their evil opponents. While many Autobots fled Cybertron, a few valiant survivors devised new tactics and launched a counteroffensive on their arch foes. And thus began a terrible series of wars. Many times, both sides have claimed victory. But this has been short-lived, for the Autobots have overthrown Decepticon tyrants. And likewise, Decepticon treachery has toppled many a peaceful Autobot ruler. And to this day, the war rages on. Me not know that before! And so after watching the disc, Shockwave's goons, we'll call them, uh, catch up to Swoop and the kids and capture them. Uh, Shockwave refers to Swoop as the foreign robot, uh, which is interesting uh, that Shockwave makes a distinction to Swoop being built on Earth. And they're all taken to the Cybertonium pits, which is where they wanted to go to begin with. We find out the other Dinobots cannot transform, which uh, Carly quickly fixes. And uh, they come up with a ruse to escape by faking a fight between Spike and Grimlock and uh, forcing the guards to then open the doors. And that allows the Dinobots to transform and fight their way out. In the meantime, the Autobots on Earth, mainly Sparkplug, um, hack the space bridge and change the destination. Uh, the Dinobots and the kids get to the space bridge, and as they're going through, Shockwave shoots off Swoop's wing, but they get into the space bridge, the doors close, and they get back to the Ark to deliver the Cybertonium to the rest of the Autobots. And because of their bravery, Carly and Spike made honorary Autobots by Optimus Prime. Now, I think this episode's pretty neat uh, for a number of reasons. One, this is a very much forgotten Dinobot episode. Uh, most people remember Dinobot Island or remember SOS Dinobots. Um, this one kind of gets lost, especially with all the Cybertronian history in it. And that's another thing I find interesting about this episode is this episode gets forgotten a lot when it comes to talking about Cybertron's history. People remember War Dawn, which we haven't talked about yet, now, or um, the key to Vector Sigma, which we haven't talked about yet. Um, but this one is kind of one of the earliest glances on what Cybertron was like before the war. It also shows that the writers probably weren't terribly in touch with each other about what they were writing, uh, as they are today in a lot of TV shows. And this is evidence from this part of the Earl Cress interview. Yeah, I don't remember how the one-parter 
played out, whether we even went to Cybertron. The only thing we had seen of Cybertron was the entrance from the space bridge. And other than that, it was completely wide open. So it, uh, it was quite a bit of fun to do that episode and figure out what this planet was going to look like. But see, the history, or at least what was done on Cybertron, wasn't completely wide open. We had stuff from the pilot episodes. We had stuff from parts where they did end up on Cybertron before. So while the history portion may have been completely wide open at this point, uh, not everything was. And I think that just goes to show how different the world is we live in today because of emails and the speed of being able to talk to someone uh, via text is much different than it was 35 years ago. And it's much more conducive to allowing writers to go back and forth and figure out what, hey, what are you doing? Hey, what am I doing? And let's make this all work together. Uh, plus, the show was turned out at such a rate, I think, that uh, it, it just goes to perpetuate the idea, the, the notion I think I've put forward, and I, I, don't, I don't think I'm the only one who's, who's met, said this before, that there were probably separate production teams um, all working simultaneously so that things never always lined up uh, properly. And so, from the desertion of the Dinobots, we're going to move on to Blaster Blues, and that is Season 2, Episode 23, overall Episode 39, written by Larry Strauss, who uh, we last heard from back on the Ultimate Doom Part 1. And if you don't remember my little note about him last time, uh, it's kind of topical with recent news. He is the son of the now late Charlotte Ray, uh, better known as Mrs. Garrett from The Facts of Life. Now, for more on this episode, I'm going to turn it over to my good buddy Gabriel Owens, the Salty Sea Man. Hey folks, Salty Seaman here. Going to do a review of Blaster Blues, uh, Season 2 episode. Now we're getting into def definitely into the uh, thick of things with uh, Season 2. Uh, I, I chose this uh, when I saw the list because uh, I don't remember it offhand. It's, uh, it's a very uh, odd thing for me not to remember these episodes, especially one which I it seems to me I, I think a fairly popular episode. It's with a very popular character and... One of my favorite characters, morally from the comic book, but uh, but Blaster, and yeah, I'm just uh, I'm sure as I'm watching this, it'll uh, and I do this review, it'll it'll come back to me. But I'm just very interested to see this episode, which I may have not seen since I was a little kid, given my lack of memory of it. So we get the episode starting off where Blaster and uh, Spike are at a, a concert with some very. Uh, glam rocky uh 80s uh la sunset strip types playing non-matching music uh which sounds like the uh the typical background music of the show uh, i think that uh ant will probably know better what the name of the piece was but uh you know little, little reminiscent of cold slither which i also got reused in uh in the in auto bop i believe I don't recall it offhand, but it just—it—it—it's it, it, definitely music that they've—it's created for the show. Uh, but definitely came back to me. I remember the part where Blaster transmits the music to uh, Cosmos in space. For whatever reason, I do remember that from childhood. 
Oh, and I guess I should mention Carly was also at the concert. Unfortunately, when it was blasted to Autobot headquarters, the Autobots uh, react in horror and hold their uh, imaginary audio res- uh, receivers by their heads as this uh, very bland and uh, non-obtrusive music uh, apparently disturbs Old Man Optimus and uh, Old Man Sparkplug. So apparently the Transformers do not know what music is. Apparently they've never seen it elsewhere in the universe. Cybertron doesn't have their own version of it. And this is their first encounter of it on Earth. Uh, or they're just being uh, sarcastic. I, or they're just being facetious and rhetorical. Uh, I don't know. Take your pick. So we cut to an observatory. Uh, and there is a scientist giving a big... Uh, speech about this new uh, device he has it's going to uh, help him contact uh, alien life forms out there using transforming his voice into pulse waves a couple questions number one you live in a world with transformers they're very very public they are known as aliens we know we know aliens exist in this world uh, you know, instead of doing this, which I, I get, you know, humans still want to do stuff on their own, but why not just ask the Autobots, hey, what about other life out there? But the way this is approaching it is, as, oh, wait, you know, alien life, wouldn't that be neat? And of course, this is the ironic part is uh, at this point, Megatron and the Decepticons come in to raid this little party. Interesting note, one of the journalists shown here in the background uh, reporting on this scientist and his invention is very clearly uh, adult Spike. Uh, this goes along with a very clearly look to be Daniel in uh, Megatron's Master Plan, which I reviewed last time, which tells me they were pulling sheets from the movie at some point. They had to be. There's, it's just, it's so, but it, it's so weird seeing it in retrospect. So Megatron absconds with the uh, MacGuffin of the week. Autobots show up too late due to uh, Blaster's music interfering for what looked to be about 10 seconds of them before they got the message, which was enough time for them to get away. But luckily, the Autobots do give uh, do go on a search for them to find the, uh, the Decepticons and the device. Decepticons have a secret base on the moon, I assume the dark side of the moon, because that's where you always put your, uh, your secret bases on the moon, uh, via AstroTrain. Uh, he, the Autobots find them and their secret moon base and what the, presumably they're about to do with the MacGuffin. Uh, specifically, it's Blaster and Cosmos, or Blaster inside Cosmos. Uh, one of the things always, uh, you know, never could place Cosmos's accent or what they were trying for. And I, I know I've heard people say it's supposed to be a Hispanic accent. I, 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 I don't know what I would describe it as. I don't know if I would describe it as, you know, a Hispanic accent or an Asian accent. I've heard that also. It's it's just Cosmos. So Blaster and Cosmos get captured by the Decepticons. They use uh, they use them for uh, basically boosts. Uh, Cosmos is a power booster and uh, Blaster to help uh, them basically do scramble radio signals all over Earth. We see, uh, you know, planes trying to land from the great NAL airlines. Uh, of course, there's no communication with the tower. We see a uh, train almost run over some people because uh, they can't radio them and tell them to get off the track. And just all the chaos and confusion Megatron is creating with uh, 
this device he's stolen from the humans and has boosted with his Decepticon power technology. In the uh, in all the ensuing chaos from the lack of uh, radio signals, uh, of in the chaos creates a fire. Uh, Inferno and Red Alert go out to put out said fire. Apparently. Uh, Red Alert's idea for putting out a fire is to uh, shoot at it with more combustion and uh, kinetic energy, which seems like a great idea as uh, Inferno is you know, actually putting flame retardant stuff onto said fire. As more chaos ensues, the Autobots go out to uh, help the humans who are completely lost without their radio signals. Uh, this is a heavy episode of transforming into vehicle mode and transforming back like very long shots and sequences of the Autobots transforming back and forth. I don't know if this was some kind of mandate from Hasbro. It's what I kind of get the feel on this episode is like, Hey, we need an episode that, you know, you guys really need to focus on showing the gimmick of the toy. They're transforming. And this is still, this is the second season. This is still relatively new. So we're getting a lot of shots of them in both modes and how they're transformed back and forth. Uh, just an interesting little side bit I noticed. Uh, Megatron gives out a... Uh, he, he, Megatron is able to uh, broadcast over the airwaves, so apparently I don't think anyone in the world is hearing right now is Megatron, who greets them with a greetings, humans, which I'll always associate with, uh, on a personal note, a D&D game I play with a fellow Transformer fan who uses it for his character who's an alien, and now I'm kind of wondering uh, if he if he got that from Megatron. Uh, very good, very likely, or at least subconsciously. Hi, Alan of ToyBoxComics.com. But uh, there's a little bit where Megatron says his name. He goes, "Greetings, humans. I am Merv." I. It sounds like he mispronounces his name. Uh, and if you can play that uh, sound clip. Greetings, humans. This is Megatron. I, I don't I don't know. You guys tell me. Was that uh, you know, was he saying Megatron? Was that just bad audio? Did he say something completely else? So something completely else, or did he say something completely different? I I really don't know. I listened to it twice, three times now. I can't for the life of me tell if he's actually saying Megatron. As Megatron is making his demands for all of Earth's energy, um, Blaster manages to. Uh, Sneak in uh, his own his own message as he's being used as part of the uh, the transponder or whatever it is Megatron's doing to the airwaves here uh, with his MacGuffin. But he manages to sneak in some music, which the Autobots pick up and use it to translocate his signal, which happens to be on the moon. So with that information, uh, an injured power glide and a very badly wounded Optimus Prime are loaded into Omega Supreme along with Spike and Carly. And they go to uh, go to the moon to uh, rescue Blaster and Cosmos and stop Megatron's fiendish scheme. And we return to the moon with Megatron apparently in about hour three of his demands. So the Decepticons go outside to fight the Autobots. Uh, Prime has some miraculous recovery from the emergency transistors that Carly had, along with the emergency jet jetpack uh, and other uh, sundry. Uh, Convenient to the plot, things lying around, uh, and while the uh, Autobots and Decepticons are fighting outside, including a, you know, a little bit of seeing uh, what Omega Supreme's capable of, and he's fighting Astro Train, which makes sense. Uh, inside, uh, Cosmos just blasts the whole thing. Uh, the, the Decepticons are the worst prisoner takers ever. They did not d 
disarm Cosmos whatsoever, and he apparently decided to wait until the coast was clear to uh, blast. He could have blasted this thing apart at any time, you know, regardless. Of, I mean, maybe he just didn't want to die. He waited for the cavalry, but regardless, uh, it seems to be a, a weird happenstance that all of a sudden Cosmos is like, oh, shit, I can just blast these things. So, yes, the Autobots win the day, and Megatron's scheme is vanquished. They are on the run. Uh, Optimus Prime congratulates Blaster on his uh, music prowess, but warns it's always at a reasonable volume is the best way to do it, because Optimus Prime is your dad. Uh, that's <laughs> This episode was... Uh, yeah, I don't have a lot of memories of it. It's very, very odd. I said I, I, I distinctly remember Cosmos rocking out as a kid... I must have watched it at some point as an adult when I relearned the series. I just I have very very little memory of it, but overall a, a fun little ep, especially if you're a Blaster fan uh, and if you like watching Autobots transform over and over again. Uh, it's 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 the definition of a filler ep, but kind of fun. Back to you, Ant. Thanks, Gabe. And uh, there are certain things there that Gabe pointed out that are, are worth following up on. Uh, he mentioned the the style sheets for some of the humans possibly being cribbed from the upcoming 1986 Transformers movie, and he may not be that far off. Uh, when I was researching this episode, I found uh, this clip of Flint Dilly, who was a writer and story editor on the show, and he mentioned uh, this little tidbit. At the end of season two, we knew we were getting ready for the, for the uh, movie. And so a lot of things became biased, became informed by what we were going to do in the movie. So we, had to, we wanted to sort of move the series in a way that that wouldn't be just totally out of the blue, that the movie would seem like part of the flesh of the series. Now, I should probably mention both this Dilly interview and the Earl Crest interview are from the Kid Rhino home DVD versions of the original series uh, bonus content. Now, another few things that I noticed in this episode, starting from the top, some just fun things. That opening at the concert, uh, one, the drummer of that band is atrocious. Uh, he is hitting things that are not syncing to the music at all, but he is also not playing drums like a drummer would play drums. Uh, he is mainly just mashing the tom-toms. Uh, also, the kids had to basically buy a seat for Blaster and then have the seat removed. Uh, he is sitting in boombox mode, and he is ginormous. He's like the size of a couch when he is in boombox mode in this episode. Uh, also, this episode is the debut of Omega Supreme. The scientist at the lab is named Professor Haley, as in Haley's Comet, and the MacGuffin of this episode is called the Voltronic Galaxer. Uh, there is a mass transforming sequence, as Gabe mentioned, and it's the first time in a while we've seen this since season one. Also in one of the scenes, uh, Optimus transforms into vehicle mode and the Autobots drive away and Optimus's trailer needs to catch up and actually just rolls up and turns before catching up to Optimus. It's uh, fairly amusing. Also, speaking of the transformation sequences, there's a weird um, group line of the Autobots transforming and saying this. And for a little bit more weirdness in the episode, um, the moon's gravity is fairly normal in this episode. Uh, it's actually totally normal in this episode. 
nobody is bouncing around, floating around at, you know, whatever the moon's gravity is compared to Earth. It's like one-sixth or something like that of Earth gravity. Um, and at the very end, when Optimus is being dad, Optimus telling Blaster not to play his music too loud, there's supposed to be a music clip in there of Blaster playing the music and then Optimus reacting negatively to it. But the music is missing. So it, the joke is very much flat because the gag isn't actually there. And one more thing that Gabe touched on that I really do feel is worth mentioning and probably should have brought it up at the beginning of this episode, not remembering Blaster Blues, um, this whole batch of episodes, I really feel like didn't get replayed a lot maybe back then. I mean, some of these still don't stick with me, but I certainly don't remember seeing them many times, uh, unlike some other episodes from the first two seasons. I feel like these episodes I saw a lot more uh, as an adult when the, the, the episodes were released on home video. And that's something worth pointing out because I think people, and especially now in uh, the current Transformers line and with the relaunch, um, there seems to be a another grasp at 80s nostalgia. And I feel like people who say uh, how great the series was in the 80s, and don't get me wrong, the show was a lot of fun and the series and the line were all a lot of fun they tend to gloss over uh episodes like blaster blues and episodes like the one uh we're about to talk about a decepticon raider in king arthur's court that is the title of the episode i'll say it one more time a decepticon raider in king arthur's court that is a spoof on a connecticut yankee in king arthur's court but uh this one is written by douglas booth it is Season 2, Episode 24, overall Episode 40. So this episode starts off at Stonehenge, but not actually Stonehenge. It's more of a cave surrounded by rocks that look like Stonehenge. And we find out that place is called the Dragon Mound, uh, but we'll get into that in a little bit now. The Autobots and Decepticons fight. The Decepticons flee into this cave, and Rumble, the blue one, senses energy in this cave. Uh, there's some energy stones, and the Decepticons uh, light up the runes on the stones and end up traveling back in time, because when they exit the cave, they find out they're in the year 543 AD. Now, when they come out of the cave, they find a gentleman by the name of Sir Wygand of Blackthorn, and uh, he is fighting against Sir Aethling, the Red Knight, now, the Decepticons decide to align themselves with Sir Wigan, and uh, in the process of this, Sir Aethling's daughter, Nimely, uh, is spying and sees what's going on, and then they she gets caught and she runs, and as she's running, she runs right into Spike and the Autobots, who have, I guess, figured out their way through the Dragon Mound. We find out there has been a land dispute between Wigan and Aethling, and... Uh, Aethling is holding a tournament, a joust, for the land rights. At the joust, uh, Nimalee chooses Spike as her champion, and he uh, does not fare well. Uh, and when Wigan shows up, he chooses Sir Ramjet and Sir Rumble, the blue one, as his champions. Ramjet transforms into his jet mode, and Rumble hops on. Uh, not to put Aethling at a disadvantage, Warpath transforms into his tank mode and Aethling hops on for a ride. 
They ride at each other, Joust style. Warpath, the tank, uh, damages the nose of Sir Ramjet severely, and they win. Uh, in the midst of this, Starscream, being impatient, kidnaps Nimue and tries to fly away, but he can't fly because he's low on energy. And it turns out all the Autobots and Decepticons are low on energy, but, but since they're in the 6th century, they have no way of creating uh, electricity or fuel or anything else that can help repower them. We cut away and we meet uh, Bjort, the wizard, who's had uh, owls inform him of what's going on before we get back to Sir Wigan's castle, where Starscream turns gold into wire to build a generator to recharge. Now, this generator is powered by humans turning a turbine, uh, which then Starscream basks in the energy from. Uh, it doesn't give off a lot of energy, but it does give off some. Now, while they're doing that, uh, Starscream is also gathering resources for another project, and he's going to send the cassettes, Ravage and Rumble, the blue one, who is there along with Ramjet, um, to get some sulfur and some potassium nitrate. And what could be more full of potassium nitrate than bird poop? And for more on that, and for more on this episode to some extent, I'm going to turn it over to someone who I've wanted on the show for a long time, and I finally got him to record something. And that is my good friend, Robo Rob Springer of zonebase.org and Radio Free Cybertron. In, um, in this episode, I was always really kind of taken aback by how much it seems like the writers just wanted to make another show for 30 minutes. Like it was just always out of, always out of just nowhere. All of a sudden the Autobots and Decepticons go back to go back to the King Arthur days and all that stuff. And I think what really, really always got me, even as a kid, because, you know, I'm like 40 going on 12, admittedly. But even as a kid, I was like, what's with all the bird poop on Rumble? Like, they made a very specific point to cover Rumble and poop. You know, they kind of just cleverly written around the bird poop to use for gunpowder. But they were like, no, nah, here's Rumble. He's got an entire basket just full of bird. He just went out and collected bird poop. Someone wrote that. It's kind of amazing. Yes, it is kind of amazing. And you can catch RoboRob, as I said before, on his website, www.zonebase z-o-n-e-b-a-s-e.org o-r-g and on his podcast Being Awesome with Rob Springer on the Radio Free Cybertron Network a show that's been dormant for a little bit and Rob if you're listening I really hope you get back on it because I miss hearing you buddy so from there Wigan has a change of heart he goes to visit Nimue who uh, he is then accosted by and they wrestle and I say that in air quotes. If you see the animation, you'll see what I mean. Uh, they wrestle on the ground. Um, and he realizes that she has beautiful eyes. And as that's going on, Spike climbs the tower she is captured in in a full suit of armor um, and then falls into a moat. He sinks because he's wearing 
armor and removes the armor underwater and he has his work clothes on. It's very odd. Uh, <laughs> Rumble, the blue one, as Rob mentioned, returns with a bucket of potassium nitrate and is covered in bird poop. And the reason they need this is because the Decepticons are making gunpowder. Spike finally makes it up the tower, only to find out that Wigand and Nimue are engaged. And uh, Aethling's Knights attack the castle, and then the Decepticons begin to hurl explosives. The Autobots try to help, but hoist a warpath, they're out of energy. Uh, Bjorth, the wizard, conjures up a lightning strike to re-energize Hoist and Warpath, who then go and on a rampage and <laughs> defeat the Decepticons, who are now completely out of energy. In the end, they all return to the Dragon Mound, which has a unique naming history. How come it's called the Dragon Mound? Well, I created it to use as a time-traveling device, but then a wandering dragon decided to make it his home. We never saw him. That's because he's been out visiting relatives. So, the Autobots and Decepticons and humans defeat the dragon using Dragon's Bane, which we find out, as Bjorth lists the ingredients, is also gunpowder. Everyone travels back through the Dragon Mount, and, you know, and this is a weird section here because the Decepticons, even though they're low on energy, are not confined in any way. No handcuffs, no way of keeping them prisoner. Uh, they come back through time and Megatron is attacking the Dragon Mount. Uh, the Autobots flee and the Decepticons, who are now prisoners, are rescued by their boss, Megatron. And that is the end of that episode. And there's a couple of more interesting notes uh, worth mentioning as I was researching this episode. One, Optimus Prime is not in this episode at all, which may be a first. They'd have to go back and check, but I don't remember an episode where he wasn't in it. And this is one where he is not. Two, Nimue is an actual character in Arthurian legend. And she is also known as Vivienne. She's also known as Morgan Le Fay, and she is also known as the Lady of the Lake. And this is an interesting note because there was a G.I. Joe episode called Excalibur, where a sword that is Excalibur is stolen from the Lady of the Lake by Storm Shadow. This episode aired six days after a Decepticon Raider in King Arthur's Court, so technically Nimue may be the same character in both because it is kind of, sort of, a shared universe. And that takes us to the final episode we're going to cover in this edition of Transformers University, and that is possibly the most famous episode of this group of five, Season 2, Episode 25, overall Episode 21, The Golden Lagoon. And this one, written by Dennis Marks, who previously wrote The Core, and uh, this is the second and final episode Marks would write for the series. Now, this episode starts with a bunch of Autobots uh, combing the beach, oddly enough, with a beachcomber, uh, and Sea Spray and Perceptor, and a few others. And Perceptor finds a rock that is uh, covered in gold and silver. While they find this interesting rock, they get attacked, and Beachcomber disappears. It turns out he walked through this cave, it's not a dragon mound this time. He walks through the other side and there's a bunch of animals and he decides to start playing with the animals and learns their language. 
Hey, I'm Mark Wahlberg. You guys know me. Let's go talk to some animals. Hey, dog, how's it going? I like your fur. That looks really great. So you're a dog, right? What's that all about? Okay, well, it was great to meet you. Say hi to your mother for me, okay? And while he's slightly more adept than Mark Wahlberg talking to animals, uh, he does find a pool of this gold liquid substance that is called Electrum. Now, while he finds this Electrum, uh, there's a rock slide and he flees. Uh, in the midst of that, Thrust finds the pool. Uh, we cut back to the battle and the Autobots are losing and Thrust shows up completely plated in gold. And he is armored and more powerful. The Autobots can't do a thing to defeat him. Uh, the Autobots retreat, but Perceptor and Sea Spray are both captured. The Decepticons on the mission report back to Megatron about the Electrum Pool. And the Decepticons go there and they go swimming in the Electrum Pool and become virtually invulnerable. And then we cut to commercial. And the reason I'm mentioning this here is that we have new commercial bumpers starting with this episode. So uh, gone are the Soundwave and Optimus Prime ones and Starscream that we've seen before. And they've been replaced with, uh, in this block, Omega Supreme and Thrust. And then later on in the show, Devastator and Astrotrain. And then in the final segment of the show, Cosmos come back to the show and the Decepticons decide to attack because they are unstoppable. Uh, they fight their way through a bunch of Autobots and back at the base, Starscream decides to have some fun by letting Sea Spray and Perceptor fight each other. He hands them guns and basically tells them to fight to the death. And Soundwave, not happy that the prisoners are out, uh, tattles to Megatron. Uh, amidst their attacks, the Decepticons capture Beachcomber, and they are on their way back, bringing him to base as Perceptor and Sea Spray mount an escape because Starscream was dumb enough to give them guns. Uh, they run to the nearest elevator, but they are caught by Megatron coming back in with the newly captured Beachcomber. The next phase of the Decepticon attack is to attack Omega Supreme, and as punishment, Megatron demands that Starscream lead the first wave. And if you remember back to the 1985 Autobot toy episode I did a while ago, uh, in the commercial for Omega Supreme, Starscream is not one to want to mess with the giant Autobot. There's the Autobot defense base! But where are the Autobots? Who cares? The Decepticons are gone! Oh no, look! It's Omega Supreme! And this isn't something that just happens in the cartoon as we'll find out later on Starscream does not fare well against Omega Supreme in the comics either so Starscream leads the offensive against Omega Supreme Omega transforms into robot mode and swings his head around to use his gun turret on the back of his head in the front of his robot mode and it's kind of neat seeing this uh it doesn't work uh and he loses to the Decepticons. Megatron transforms into gun mode and has Soundwave fire him, which technically makes him the bot with the golden gun, uh, to finish off Omega Supreme. The next phase of this attack for the Decepticons is to attack the Ark. Uh, we finally see Optimus Prime in Act 3 of this show, um, and it's the first time we've seen him since the end of Blaster Blue. So that is five whole acts 
of the show, the three within the previous episode, uh, a Decepticon Raider in King Arthur's Court, and the first two acts of this show were free of Optimus Prime. Uh, Optimus sends Autobots to find the Electrum thanks to Teletran 1 figuring out a little bit of what was going on. Back at the Decepticon base, Beachcomber fights off his uh, Seeker Jet guards and escapes, and in the process, frees Perceptor and Sea Spray, and they escape by shooting a hole in the side of the Decepticon underwater base, which allows them to jump into the ocean and get out of there via Sea Spray. Of course, there's nothing mentioned about whether or not the base gets flooded, though it really should have. Um, from here, Beachcomber, Sea Spray, Perceptor, and the rest of the Autobots all end up at the Electrum Pool at the same time and decide to go for a swim and power themselves up the same way the Decepticons did. Meanwhile, the Decepticons are attacking the Ark, and they realize they're attacking a bunch of dummies, fake Autobots that aren't actually there. So they return to the Golden Lagoon, only to find the Autobots plated fully in Electrum and just as powerful as they are. And that includes a big bad Omega Supreme. In the middle of the battle, the power of the Electrum starts to wear off on the Decepticons. And so they start losing pretty bad. So Megatron decides that if they can't have it, no one can. And they blow up the Golden Lagoon. And so the Autobots win. Sort of. Beachcomber is left sitting in this beautiful forest that he had originally seen. Trees are burnt out. The animals are gone. The lagoon is blown up. And he says, We won. And it's kind of an interesting early pro-environmental message from the 80s that, yeah, they won, but this beautiful part of the world was destroyed in the process. Now, another reason this episode is fairly well remembered is that it's been commemorated a few times in toy form so in japan in 2002 i think i'm going off a of memory here uh takara the company that makes transformers in japan was in the midst of doing a lot of reissue uh figures of the original series and doing homages in the process to special edition or hard to find versions of the diaclone toys that were made back then and for their jazz reissue, Meister, as his name is in Japan, they did an all gold-plated version. You can find it on tfu.info if you take a look. Uh, go to 1984, go to jazz. It'll be listed under the recolors, uh, redecos and retools section of the page. And then you can link to that page in 2002. So yeah, the toy is entirely gold-chromed. Now... Uh, as I mentioned in a TFU News and Views a few months ago, in Japan later this year, they're doing a commemorative Golden Lagoon uh, series of figures that includes a masterpiece MP10 Optimus Prime done up in gold plating and golden and brown plastic, uh, a three-pack with Sea Spray, Beachcomber, and Perceptor, and a Starscream from the Unite Warriors mold all on its own. So... Despite most of these episodes not really having a long shelf life in people's memories, uh, which is a shame for Desertion of the Dinobots because it does really have some interesting stuff, uh, Golden Lagoon seems to win out uh, as far as one of the more remembered Season 2 episodes. And that will 
wrap up another edition of Transformers University. I am your host, Anthony Bricali. I want to thank you for coming on this ride with me. Next time around, we will have passed our one-year anniversary. So if you've been with me from the beginning, I thank you. And if you just joined on, please go back and listen from the beginning, from episode one, because uh, I have a lot of fun doing this show, and I hope you have a lot of fun listening to it. As always, if you'd like to support the show, there are many ways you can do it. I'll run through them quickly, I know. You can become a Patreon patron. Enroll at Transformers University on Patreon at patreon.com slash T-F-U-I-N-F-O. Support the site using our Amazon links. doesn't cost you any more if you'd like to do that. It's tfu.info slash Amazon, and anything you buy on Amazon after that, they kick back a couple pennies to the show to help support us. And of course, the more you buy, the more that comes back to tfu.info. Now, the easiest way you can help support the show is to subscribe to us on YouTube, youtube.com slash tfuinfo, tfuinfo. Go on YouTube, log in, click subscribe, get us to 1,000 subscribers. Don't forget, we have a Studio Series Thundercracker still to give away the minute we hit 1,000 subscribers. And all you have to do to win that Thundercracker is to go to the video for it, which is on our YouTube page, and leave a comment, anything. Say hi. Say, I want that Thundercracker, and you're in. Now, to keep up with me, say hi. Send me some feedback for next episode. You can catch me on Twitter, TFU underscore info, Facebook.com slash TFU info, Instagram.com slash TFU info, and of course, on the web at www.tfu.info for the world's longest running transforming toy archive. And of course, if you want to email me, it's info at tfu.info. Next time on the show, I've got a very special toy themed episode I've been waiting to do since before I started doing this show. Um, this is one that is kind of shrouded in mystery. Uh, and hopefully I will get to demystify it for you and for a lot of longtime Transformers fans. There's not a lot of information out there uh, that's all in one place, and I kind of hope to help with that in the next episode. What is it? Oh, it has to do with 1985 and it has to do with toys, and that's all I'm going to tell you. So until next time, see ya.